Hello and thank you for listening to The Booking Club, the podcast that brings you today's leading authors and commentators from a table at their favorite dining spots. I'm your host, Jack Aldane. We're out of lockdown and about town again for this episode, where I'll be speaking to writer and campaigner Louise Perry at the Bingham River House in Richmond. On my left is a beautifully well-kept garden with what looks like possibly thyme growing in patches, beautifully kept ferns, a lovely lawn. Beyond that, there are people kayaking on the River Thames. Beyond that, tennis players reworking those forehands after so many months without access to tennis courts. And on my left, the Bingham River House. And directly sat in front of me is the writer, campaigner, and uh, author of a book soon to be released in uh, 2022, as yet untitled, Louise Perry. Louise, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. So tell me, why have you chosen the Bingham River House? I've never been here before, but I've always noticed it while walking along the river because there's a very uh, inviting gate onto the towpath where you can see the gardens. And it's one of the few places that's allowing us to eat outside, (laughs) having just come out of lockdown. So it seemed like the perfect choice. I kind of left your introduction relatively scant of detail, mainly because, well, taking into account the fractious nature of that term feminism, how would you describe yourself? I would use the term feminist, even though (laughs) I'm, I'm in disagreement with a lot of feminists. I mean, it's always been a political movement that's prone to infighting, so that's nothing new. It is unfortunately a loaded term, though, which can be a bit challenging, because in some senses, I think what it's often used now to mean is essentially that you're a graduate, (laughs) right? I think it's something like 10, 15% of British women would call themselves feminists. It's a really small minority, and it's hugely class-based. So what you're really saying often when you identify yourself as a feminist is you're saying that you have a postgraduate degree and that you come from a certain political and social milieu. But I think if you just define it very sparsely as being interested in promoting the interests of women, then then you can use it as loosely as you like. How often have you asked women whether they identify as feminists and, and what are some of the interesting answers you've received to that? Um, I think that it is often taken to be a cultural signifier as much as a political one. The vast majority of women are basically anti-rape and domestic violence, which when you drill down into it is really the only crucial issue I think that feminists would mostly be in agreement on. So in that sense, it could be a very broad term. But it's often taken, I think, to mean thinking that men and women are the same, necessarily, and that all differences between the sexes need to be erased, The women ought to be like men. I think that that's often a, um, a way that it's understood by a lot of women who maybe are more suspicious of the, of the liberal left that's associated with feminism, which I think is, I think is a shame because there's, there's no reason to get bogged down in thinking that that's how it has to be. I think that, in a sense, the way that I differ from a lot of other contemporary feminists is that I'm probably harking back to something like the difference feminism of the 1980s, which was a brief and fairly academic (laughs) trend, which was all about emphasising the ways in which men and women are different from each other and thinking about how to ameliorate any of the tensions between men and women in terms of recognising the ways in which our interests are sometimes aligned and sometimes in conflict. With that then, tell us about what people can expect from the book you've got coming out. 
So it's a book about the cost of the sexual revolution, essentially. I'm sceptical about progress as an idea. I, I basically don't believe in it. That Martin Luther King idea of the arc of the arc of the universe bending towards justice, I don't believe in it. I think that to the extent that women's lives have improved over the last hundred or so years or more, it shouldn't be conceptualised as just a sort of linear marching upwards towards the good and that we can expect that to get better and better. And I think once you become sceptical about that progress narrative, which doesn't obviously just apply to feminism, it applies to all sorts of political stuff, you start seeing it everywhere and you start realising how pervasive and how deeply flawed it is. So I wouldn't call myself a progressive, right? Not because I necessarily disagree with all of the things that come under the banner of progressivism, but just because I think it's nonsensical. So I think to say that the, the way that I think the history of the sexual revolution normally gets chalked up by people who are vaguely progressive, one is unambiguously good, that everything everything improved, and two, it's generally not seen in materialist terms, it's seen as being almost, not meaning to straw man, but in its crudest terms, it's seen as being, we all just sort of decided in 1960-something to stop being wrong and stop being bad. <laughs> and everyone and, and, and everyone kind of came to their senses in a moment of enlightenment. And then ever since, we've been on this sort of trajectory towards persuading more and more people to be good and not to be bad. I think that that's not the key driver. I think that actually the way that we should understand the way in which men and women's lives have changed has a lot more to do with the way that things have changed materially so the crucial thing obviously in the 1960s is contraception that you suddenly have things like the pill and other reliable forms of contraception that just never existed before i think that when we're thinking about women's representation in the professions and in politics and elite spaces like that we should be thinking more about the role of washing machines and central heating and, and all of the ways in which so much less time needs to be spent on domestic labour than it once did. So your book is sort of a rebuttal to this idea that really ever since the progressive era of the 60s, things have simply gotten better and better. People have become more and more free without consequence, without need for compromise. You talked about the importance of the material changes that have taken place. And I suppose while you may say you're not a progressive, in some sense, you do take that quite Marxist stand. Yeah, exactly. I'm a Marxist without being a progressive. Right, right, right. <laughs> yes. And a conservative too, I would say, on some level. In some ways. I mean, I... I guess what I want to say is instead of understanding history as being a narrative of progress, we should understand it as just being change and, 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 and change being constant. And in a sense, there are some things that we can say are unambiguously better than they were in the past. Something like much lower infant mortality, you know, I think is very, very hard to understand as anything less than an obviously good thing. But there are many other things that aren't obviously better or worse, they're just different. Let's talk about that. I mean, we typically think of the sexual revolution of the 60s onwards as having democratised sexual fulfilment, and in particular as having taken the shame out of women's enjoyment of sex, as having given women the autonomy to say what sexual satisfaction means to them and to pursue it openly and without stigma. That seems to be, and I think many people would agree, the biggest positive to have come out of the sexual revolution for women. Are we wrong about this? And if so, why? I think there is some truth in it. It clearly was the case in the past that you would often have women who were extremely ignorant about sex and that female sexual agency and pleasure was given very little emphasis. So I wouldn't want to say that that narrative is entirely false, but I think it's too simplistic and I think it also misses out some of the costs. Um, Let's talk about the costs. I think that in some ways what we've seen has been a... There is still an element of women's interests not being properly promoted by our sexual culture. I just think it's in a different way. That it used to be that the emphasis was so much on chastity and obedience and women who had sex outside of marriage were stigmatised. 
and that was often really cruel. But at the same time, I think that in some ways we flipped that and now we have women being encouraged to be much more sexually open but still on male terms. And I think things like the pornification of society has very much been to women's costs and it often just gets... Um, when you just have a consent framework, basically. I mean, I think in some senses what we've done is that we used to have a very complex and in some ways very restrictive system of sexual ethics, which determined what was considered good and bad sexually. We've, we've sort of done away with that in a sense, or at least we've kind of, we pay lip service to having done away with it. And we say that actually the only thing that matters now is consent. And as long as everyone's consenting, you do, can do absolutely whatever you want, that's fine. I think that that ethical system is really inadequate. I think that actually consent is the bare minimum. It's a very low bar. And that there are all sorts of things that might be permissible within the consent framework, but they're actually really damaging. I'd love to talk about consent in a moment because I know that it's central to your thinking. Um, Is part of the book there to say that the mistake of the sexual revolution was to launch a kind of corrective to conservative sexual norms that was so thorough that it never really distinguished between norms that hindered women's sexuality and those that actually protected them? from having sex or sexual freedoms extorted from them. No, I think that's, no, I think that's, I mean, I would go further than corrective. I'd say that it's reactive. I think in a sense, what's sometimes called sex positivism is basically deeply reactionary. It's just about rejecting bourgeois sexual norms, regardless of, of their merits, you know, and about stripping away anything associated with old-fashioned sexual morality, which I think is a mistake, mm. because certainly there are some things about traditionalist sexual ethics which are bad, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying hard not to talk in terms of good and bad because I think that basically everything has trade-offs. You know, any large social movement like the sexual revolution, which is huge, absolutely um, historically unprecedented, is obviously going to have trade-offs and is obviously going to have benefits. And I think it's about acknowledging them, which I don't think we do often enough. I think that we think too simplistically mm. about 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 what's happened. So what I'm what I'm looking at in the book is partly just fundamentally challenging this narrative and and looking at the ways in which sexual culture has changed, particularly for the porn generation, the millennials and younger, who've been brought up in a sexual culture which has a, t- a totally different set of expectations you, you know in a sense I am influenced by the feminists of the, the radical feminists of the 1970s and 80s who were in some senses really prescient about this and saw the direction of travel in terms of things like the sex industry and porn which was you know this was long before the internet was thought of they were they were prescient in some ways and in some ways they didn't predict certain things you know I think that what we're actually seeing now in terms of young people is we're seeing a pornification the sexual script as it's called the sort of expectations of what sex should look like is much more aggressive loveless anonymized but also at the same time we have this weird paradox where young people are actually having less sex than they used to how do we explain that you must have looked into research on this uh, what have you found it's 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 interesting isn't it i mean i i <laughs> there's this expression that's used it's a slight kind of pseudo medical term called death grip syndrome which is used by some men in particular describe a physical and psychological syndrome where you masturbate so much and so aggressively that you can't have that you become impotent that you can't have sex with a real person if you're addicted to porn you you can find it impossible to actually have sex with a real person because you've altered your brain chemistry so much I, in a sense, almost think that we're suffering from cultural death grip in that we have a public life 
which is incredibly sexualized. You even look back at, say, that famous Wonder Bra ad from the 1990s where you had the model with a push-up bra saying, hello, boys, right? I was vaguely aware of this and I assumed that it come from the 70s or 80s or something because there's this mythology around it causing car crashes and being really shocking. Right. It's from the mid-1990s. It's not that long ago. But even then, that was that was considered really, really unusual. Whereas now, like the idea of a picture of a woman in a bra being shocking is so strange now because it's everywhere. But then also at the same time, you end up with people actually having much less fulfilling sex lives. And I I think there's an extent to which when you no longer make sex restrictive or when everything is suffused with sexuality all the time, there's a sense in which there's no boundaries anymore and people are no longer able to see sex as something special and meaningful and real which is kind of strangely paradoxical, isn't it? So it's, it, 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 so it's not quite right just to say that what we're seeing is sort of hypersexualization in every possible way. I think what we're seeing is a warping of sex based on this belief that any kind of oppression is necessarily harmful. Listeners may remember that in July of last year, you and other campaigners scored quite a big win against what is known as the rough sex defence. Tell us about that and what did you set out to change? So my... A friend and colleague, Fiona McKenzie, who founded the campaign, it was after there was a particularly grim case in this country of a woman called Natalie Connolly who died and her boyfriend was charged with her murder and he was able to avoid a murder conviction and was sentenced to just three and a half years in prison because he claimed that she consented to really serious injuries as part of rough sex. And Fiona had noticed increasingly that this was something that we were seeing in the media in terms of defendants relying on this kind of defence. And so she went away and documented as many cases as she could of this happening and noticed that, one, that it was happening more often. There was an increase in the number of defendants making this kind of defence. And two, that they were increasingly meeting with success when they did so. Um, So in about half of the cases, men were avoiding murder convictions and either being convicted of manslaughter or, are, or in a couple of cases not being convicted of any crime at all because they, they claim that these women who were obviously dead, they couldn't give their side of the story, had consented to violence that looked an awful lot like domestic abuse um, but was reframed as being a sort of sexual liberation thing. The, the law on this is kind of complicated because in a sense it shouldn't have been happening because of existing case law but in, it, it was happening because for, for various reasons the courts weren't, um, weren't implementing this case law as they ought to have been. And so we were able to persuade the government to put it into statute. And this is hopefully going to be passed shortly as part of the Domestic Abuse Abuse Act of this year. What's sort of revealing, I think, particularly about this phenomenon, um, I mean, you know, when we're talking about the homicide cases, it's, it's um, we found 67 cases in this country. So we're not talking very, very large numbers. We found many more cases of non-lethal violence. Um, and tellingly, in every single case that we found, 100% of defendants who've relied on this defence so far have been men. We've not found a single case of a woman relying on this kind of defence. And when they come to court, the women who survived, in 100% of cases, they say they didn't consent to it. They reject the narrative that the defendant is presenting, which is it, it tells us a lot. I think what it what it also reveals in a broader sense is the ways in which BDSM has been mainstreamed. Right. You know, I mean, the BDSM proponents would reply to this and say that the responsible BDSM practice has to include an emphasis on consent at all times that you know it shouldn't it shouldn't be possible for people to be um to be seriously injured and so on if you're practicing responsibly but in practice what we're seeing is that the idea of sex being really violent and aggressive um even to the point of causing someone's death 
has has filtered out of what was once very niche forms of pornography and you're now seeing it i mean for instance something like strangulation which is the cause of death in about half of the cases that we found used to be a niche within a niche right really really not considered to be a mainstream sexual practice whereas now we see it on the front pages of the biggest porn sites in the world presented as a, as, a, as a standard form of just slightly kinky sex. That's right. In a recent article, you quoted a survey of British men under the age of 40, which asked if they had ever committed certain acts of violence or aggression against their partners during sex. This included things like spitting on them, gagging them, slapping them or strangling them. And 71% answered yes. A third of those men admitted that they had not asked for consent beforehand. Uh, and a majority felt that porn had influenced their sexual tastes. Mm, really shocking, isn't it? I, I was amazed at it being that high. I mean, that survey doesn't differentiate between men who've done it once and men who do it all the time, which is important. But it does tell us at least what is now considered normal. One of the things that we know about the sex impulse is that it has a tendency to suppress the disgust impulse, which is very closely linked to moral reasoning, because we have a natural aversion to intimacy with strangers for obvious reasons to do with disease you know we're evolved to be a bit cautious about getting up close and personal with people we don't know but obviously in order to have sex you have to disable that so feeling sexually aroused suppresses the disgust impulse which means also that you become less less good at deciding on whether or not things are morally good so what you'll quite often hear for instance to people who use sex compulsively um, use porn compulsively is that they will find themselves watching stuff that they actually find really horrible and really upsetting and then as soon as they orgasm they're like, oh my God, and they'll sort of push the laptop away. It, it, it's not that uncommon. A minority of women are interested in um, quite violent porn and rape porn. You know, it's not exclusively watched by men. And they'll sometimes um, talk about watching this stuff, kind of knowing that it's wrong and kind of realising that the people in it are real people and that the, 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 the pain that they're seeing is real. But it's not until after the orgasm that they actually are really repulsed by it. But then they go back to it and there's this kind of really dysfunctional cycle. Really odd isn't it that the very act that human beings need to go through in order to survive and reproduce is based on an instinct suppressor as to moral reasoning man is a sick animal <laughs> yeah it might just be accidental it might just be a side effect of the disgust impulse needing to be disabled but yeah i mean i, I think that this is an important thing to i think that i really don't like the term sex positive i think it's really stupid i don't like this term sex negative either it's, it's like describing oneself as being food positive or food negative or something, something that's so basic and fundamental. The idea that you would just be positive towards it or be negative towards it. It's another it. oversimplification, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, basically what sex positives are saying is that they reject traditional sexual morality. And so because, you know, these imagined kind of traditionalists of the past were squeamish about sex, they love it, they think everything about it is amazing. And then they end up defending, like, one of the most voracious hypercapitalist industries it is like saying that you're food positive and therefore defending McDonald's and all of McDonald's works, you know, and refusing to recognise the harms of obesity and refusing to sort of think that eating disorders are bad or whatever. It's as simplistic as that. But I think it's persuasive because it feeds into this progress narrative about how we used to be really repressed about sex and now we're not repressed about sex and that's good. And therefore everything that seems to be sexually open must be embraced. You're not just opposed to violence without consent. You're also suspicious of the weight that is given to consent in modern dating and modern sexual relationships. Why is consent, even when it is given by a woman explicitly and consciously, suspect? So I think there are a few layers to the problem with the consent model. One is to do with what happens at the sort of societal scale. So, for instance, when you believe that consent is all that matters, 
it ends up being very, very difficult to, for instance, prosecute things like violence against women and, and murder in some cases. There are some BDSM proponents who would say that you should legalise everything up to and including ki killing someone um, as long as they consent to it. This looks delicious. Thank you so much. Do we keep going? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the BDSM community, what have they said in their defence that you feel maybe has some weight to it but ultimately you disagree with? Yeah, one of the things that is really appealing and in some ways persuasive about the consent model is it is very simple, that all you really need to do is apply one principle and say as long as everyone's consenting and is obviously capable of consenting, then everything's fine. It means that it, you don't have that very difficult issue of sort of who decides the response that you'll get quite often from BDSM proponents is sort of who are you to tell me that something that I enjoy and consent to and do safely and so on is, is bad for me or is bad for anybody else and I, I do sympathize with that you, do, you end up with this really difficult sort of issue of authority and the fact that we have to try and reach these these answers co collectively in some sense and there's always a degree of disagreement and conflict and you know, so I can understand the appeal of the consent model, but I also think that actually just because it's simple doesn't mean it's true. And and I think actually in reality, a lot of people, almost everyone actually doesn't believe the consent model. Really? Yeah. I think that there are some real radicals who really do think that absolutely everything is fine. Like an example that I give in the book is Gail Rubin, who's one of the founders of queer theory, American theorist. Um, she genuinely thinks, uh, it seems, that absolutely everything goes as long as there's consent. She's like a, she's like a true radical. She absolutely believes in her principles. I, th I think most people actually don't. And I always think that the example of Harvey Weinstein is a good example of this because many of the crimes that he perpetrated were easily condemned within the consent framework. But actually, a lot of what Weinstein did personally and a lot of what was revealed during Me Too in a much greyer area than that. It wasn't necessarily to do with the use of violence or explicit coercion. Often it was to do with there being a culture of expectation that young actresses and whoever would offer sexual favours in exchange for career opportunities. It couldn't easily be understood as just, well, this is non-consensual, so it's fine. So it's not. So, so it has to be condemned, you know. Um, and it was clear from a lot of the the liberal feminists who, ostensibly very invested in the consent model, would say that even if the women consented to having sex with Weinstein in exchange for roles, that was wrong. You know, there was there was an immediate recognition that it wasn't the same as other things that an employer might ask. Like, if an employer asks you to make coffee for them or to do overtime or, you know, there are all sorts of things that an employee might be asked to do. And we're all kind of fine with that. We know that making coffee for your boss is, is okay. <laughs> like, it might be annoying, but it's not, even if it's not in your job description, it's not an unreasonable request. Which shows that actually there is a recognition that sex isn't quite the same. That there is something about sex which makes it different from other sorts of social interaction. And you can't just say that as long as there is as long as people sort of sign on the dotted line and pass the consent threshold test that that's that that's good enough over the summer last year you had quite an interesting exchange of letters yourself and the writer james budworth uh, i think you were making an argument that the status quo of the modern dating landscape mainly benefits men and he sort of responded by saying that actually there is a, a large degree to which digital hookup culture tends to only really 
reward very high-status men and very attractive women. Uh, he said, to be sure, you're right that this doesn't necessarily lead to happiness for women. Those high-status men are doing very well out of the status quo and are often only looking for hookups. As you say, they have a great deal of choice facilitated by dating apps and Instagram, etc. So it makes a certain degree of sense from their perspective. Uh, but he says um, the other side of this is that even moderately attractive women with even a slightly prominent Instagram profile are now being hit up by minor celebrities with blue tick accounts. This is the globalization of dating and the average man must now compete with these high status men in order to get a girlfriend. What were your reflections on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I don't think that he's wrong to say that there are certain men who who really lose out in the modern dating landscape. And um, we mentioned earlier about the, the growing proportion of men who remain virgins into their 20s and 30s, sometimes called incels. I mean, in a sense, what's happened is that when you get rid of a lot of traditional sexual morality, you end up with a sort of deregulated dating landscape. It's almost like the free, free marketization of sex. And one of the things that tends to happen in that instance is that high-status attractive men attract more and more women. And if they're not monogamous and if they're not getting married and sort of removing themselves from the dating pool, they will end up having many more partners, sometimes at the same time. And then you end up with men who have no sexual interest whatsoever. It is true that it's much easier generally for an average-looking woman to attract a male partner than it is for an average-looking man to attract a female partner. And there are men who really resent that fact. And I do, I, I do understand that. And I think there's an extent to which it is a dysfunctional system. But I think in some senses, one of the mistakes that incels make is that they assume that what women want is casual sex and what women want is just to be able to attract as many partners as possible. And there's a sense in which there's like a mutual incomprehension sometimes on the part of the sexes, which is partly to do with the fact that male and female sexuality is quite different, but we're very invested in pretending that it's the same. Um, and I think what's generally happens is that the liberal feminist movement has encouraged women to imitate male sexuality to see behaving like men as being an obvious aspiration when I don't think it is and we know actually that crucially on average although at the population level this is this is really significant women tend to be much less interested in casual sex much keener to settle down much more reluctant to have sex with partners they don't know in all sorts of ways hookup culture doesn't benefit women whose preferences are for that psychologists call this being low in sociosexuality so sociosexuality is a personality trait essentially a psychological trait which determines your interest in sexual variety and men on average are higher in sociosexuality than women and also the very the very very high sociosexuality tail struggle to remain faithful and would ideally have hundreds of sexual partners and whatever is almost exclusively men and the people who are interested in having much more committed monogamous relationships exclusively are much more likely to be women so you sort of end up with this difficult mismatch in that the average man and the average woman want slightly different things and that's sort of immovable that's that is very much linked to biology so some incels who might want to have lots of sexual partners and can't attract them and feel frustrated will look at a woman who can't walk down the street without getting catcalled and think gosh lucky her <laughs> you know but that's not how she experiences it but they don't understand that it's actually not women don't want to hook up with strangers on the street you know and so it comes back to what we were speaking about at the beginning the fact that conservative social norms around sex and courtship have been misconstrued as being totally in favor of men in the service of patriarchy when in fact actually they did an awful lot to protect women's interests yeah i mean one of the most um <laughs> One of the most radioactive things you can say, but it's true, is that in a world without contraception, 
um, not having sex before marriage is a deeply feminist position because this is where sorry for me this is this is where words like uh frigid words like prude are ones that you've argued women perhaps should take back and own proudly yeah because of course if a likely outcome of having sex is is pregnancy of course it's not in women's interests to have sex with with men who aren't committed to them of course it's in their interest to have some sort of legal way in which they're bound to the father of their child and can can be financially supported by them and so on you know in the past the idea of a woman being um being knocked up by a random bloke was an absolute disaster of course it was because pregnancy is incredibly burdensome on women physically it's very dangerous as well in the past much less so now and um of course you don't want to sort of take that risk lightly so as I thought earlier this week about the news that's come out of plans to update the sex education curriculum in schools, I wondered if you could simply go in and make the changes yourself, what would you change? <laughs> there was a, an article in The Telegraph this week that was asking various young people what they wish they'd learnt in sex education. And the thing that I found really alarming about it is you had a combination of young people asking the state to provide the most basic moral instruction, right? So it was things like, you shouldn't catcall women, you shouldn't rape other people, you know. The idea that if you just sit children down and you tell them you mustn't rape one another, (laughs) that that will, one, that it will resolve the problem, but also I just find it slightly bizarre that we are so so infantilized that we think that 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 that's an appropriate role for the state to play i find very odd and similarly at the same time you you sometimes have these calls for schools to not just provide information about biology or about safety or about the law but to actually provide like sexual instruction to give children sex tips basically i'm not a big fan of that because i think that the the risk of doing that is eroding the sexual boundaries between teachers and children i I think basically that if it wouldn't be appropriate for a parent to tell a child something then uh, a teacher shouldn't tell them either because i think that this is one of the other things that results from thinking that um uh, sexual openness is an obvious good in, in and of itself is actually sometimes those kind of boundaries exist for very good reason and i think doing away with them is a mistake I think, though, the idea that rape is just a a result of a misunderstanding and that if you just explain it gently, that people will understand that, you know, of course you shouldn't treat people like this, I think is folly. Back to your book. What else can you tell us about it? Timeline for its publication? Is there anything else, any other details that uh, listeners might be interested to know at this stage? Um... I'm expecting it to be... I've almost finished writing it, <laughs> but I'm about to go on maternity leave, which will slightly um, slightly delay writing the final That's chapter. That's right. We've gotten this far without uh, mentioning <laughs> the fact that you are, in fact, is it seven months now, eight months? Uh, eight, yeah. I'm, I'm due in three weeks. <laughs> I'm extremely pregnant. So I was hoping to be able to finish the book. And I've written the book almost entirely over the course of this pregnancy, and I was hoping to be able to finish it before... I gave birth. Uh, I'm going to not quite manage it. I've written about 90% of it. But um, it's, I'm expecting it to be out in the spring of next year. Well, Louise, I wish you all the very, very best for the delivery of the book, for the delivery of the baby. <laughs> it's been wonderful to sit down in a real place with a real person after so many months. <laughs> all right. You. Thank you. Thank you.